Uh, well, good morning. Would you please take up your Bibles again and turn to Acts chapter 9. We'll be reading from verse 32 to 43, continuing our series through this book. So let's listen to the Lord's word to us. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years who was paralysed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. These are God's words to us. Now I wonder how easily uh, you get distracted you know, I, I can be terrible at this. I'm mid-sentence talking about something and suddenly, you know, I've seen a, a book on the bookshelf and, and then my mind's gone into the story of the book and, and that reminds me of a time when I was a kid and, oh, oh is, that, is that the time? And, and after a pause, you, you know, well, well, I better finish my sentence. So um, you say something bland like, yeah, sure, great, and, and that's that and hope no one noticed. You know, we, we get distracted by things. Perhaps some of you uh, know that experience. And when we do, when we do get distracted, we need someone to refocus us on what's important, don't we? To actually remind us what we're actually up to. You're actually saying that. Um, Please finish your sentence. But here in Acts, Luke, he's reminding the church of what really matters. Stopping them from getting distracted and refocusing them. Now this is a really interesting part of the story of Acts. If you remember back to last week, we were with Saul. Uh, His conversion, it was a climactic moment, wasn't it? It was the salvation of the persecutor. Uh, The wolf becomes a sheep. You know, a huge change in the church. 
And Luke told us a little but really significant detail in what Jesus said to Saul. He said that Saul will be going to the Gentiles. Now that is a whole new ball game, the Gentiles. Until now, the gospel has only been spreading amongst the Jews or the Jewish converts. So this is a big moment. How's, how's it going to go? Who's going to cross that gap uh, to the Gentiles? And the move uh, of the gospel to the Gentiles is about to happen. Okay, Chapters 10 and 11 are bursting with that moment. But here at the end of chapter 9, we have a a transition section. The attention is turning back to Peter. And Luke gives us two miracles. We've got this healing of a paralysed man called Aeneas, and the bringing back to life of a lady called uh, Dorcas or Tabitha, depending on which language you're speaking in. Now why? Why these two miracles? Now, in terms of the big flow uh, of the narrative, you know, Luke is showing us how Peter geographically moves uh, to, to Joppa. Okay, that, that's at the beginning um, of, of chapter 10. He's in uh, Joppa. And Luke, through our little passage, he highlights the places. I don't know if you noticed. He, he tells us he's in Lydda initially in verse 32. He then introduces Joppa in verse 36. Um, And then at the end of the passage, again, he reminds us he's in Joppa, he's staying in Joppa. The places are important. The thing is, Luke could have just told us, he could have just told us verse 32 and ended with the word Joppa. You can see that. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Joppa. That that would have made perfect sense, it would have been true. Uh, And these two little moments perhaps would have been forgotten, like other incidences that Luke doesn't recall for us. So why why are they here? Well, let's just spend a bit of time in the story, and and I hope as we dwell with these three people, with Peter, with Aeneas, with Dorcas, we'll start to glimpse why Luke has told us. And then we'll uh, spend some time looking at two implications uh, for us. Now, Peter, he's, he's the main focus of this passage, isn't he? And he's on the move. He's going between Christian believers, slowly moving west. For you guys, west uh, from Jerusalem towards the Mediterranean coast. And uh, perhaps uh, with some others, perhaps alone, uh, Luke doesn't tell us. But Luke does tell us, as I said, where he stops Lydda. And here in Lydda, he meets up with the church. Perhaps planted when believers were scattered back in chapter 8. You know, church growth was always moving faster than the the disciples. Uh, God had outstripped his apostles a long time ago. But when he gets here, he meets this man called Aeneas. He's a paralyzed man. We're not sure if it's from the neck down, from the waist down. Perhaps he's, he's living in a bed, in the corner of a room. Perhaps sitting around him, there are believers taking shifts and caring for him. Aeneas. It's not just a paralysed man, is he? But he's Aeneas. And it must have been a hard for Aeneas. Just imagine for him. The gospel's going out. He's hearing of people being saved. You know, perhaps people are heading off to another house to go uh, for a prayer meeting. But he just lies there and waits for everyone to return. Perhaps he, he tries to get excited, but struggles with the fact he can't actually do anything to help. He can't be out there on the front line. And so he lies there. Perhaps he prays. 
Perhaps he, he fights back the tears, trying to look happy when people come back uh, happy and talking about what Jesus is doing. Perhaps he's frustrated, he's a burden. And yet, he has no idea how God is about to use these eight years of frustration. But here we are, Peter, the apostle, steps into the room. Perhaps there's a small crowd uh, with him. And Peter notices Aeneas in the corner, notice him lying there, paralysed. Now since this is uh, a part of Acts, Acts is volume 2 or in Luke's work, just the mention of a paralysed man may, may start reminding us of Jesus. Back in Luke 5, he had a paralysed man, and a paralysed man, do you remember, was lowered in through a roof by a group of believers. And here, just as it was back in Luke 5, it's Jesus who's the one with power to heal. You know, Peter isn't some magician like Simon. He isn't some self-glorifying preacher. No, as he looks down at Aeneas, he is so clear and he speaks with an amazing authority. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Imagine, imagine being in the room right then, okay? Heads, heads will be swiveling, won't they? Straight uh, around. Hearts are racing. You know, they'd heard that Jesus was doing miracles uh, through Peter, but, but right now, right here, Peter was declaring Christ's work. Was it going to happen? Was this real? Was Peter the apostle they thought he was? Was Christ the saviour they trusted him to be? And then Luke states it very simply, doesn't he? And immediately he rose. Peter was in the room, but Jesus Christ was at work. Peter has said the words, but, but Jesus had taken broken and withered nerves and refused them. You know, Peter was the apostle, but it was Jesus who had restored the proteins and the atrophied muscles and given a near strength to stand. And the result is hardly surprising, is it? Verse 35, have a look down. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Aeneas, a man who had been bedridden for eight long years, now the source of Christ being glorified throughout the region. Because the person who is behind this miracle is so clear, isn't it? Peter never turned the picture to himself. Those who saw the miracle heard what it was all about. It was about Jesus, the saviour, the forgiver of sins. But Luke doesn't keep us in litter for long, or keep Peter, uh, Peter there. A, a couple of Christians knock at the door. You know, perhaps he's just sat down, he's drinking a cup of tea, reading the Lydda Gazette, I don't know, and he, he hears people asking for him. Dorcas has died. A godly woman in Joppa, just 12 miles down the road on the coast. And these disciples urge Peter to come with him, come without delay. Now, we don't know what they're eager for. Are they eager for him to bring a message to the morning church? To calm the grieving widows? To, to point them to the future resurrection of Christ? Or do they believe, as, as Christ's apostle, that he can bring some miraculous intervention? We don't know, but, but, but Peter goes. And perhaps Peter doesn't know what's going to be happening either. Now, just imagine him walking those 12 miles along the dusty roads... Perhaps his, his mind races to what he had seen Jesus do. How he had seen Jesus raise the dead before. You know, Peter had seen Jesus do it to a number of people, hadn't he? He, he saw Jesus raise a widow's son. 
He saw him raise a little girl, Jairus' daughter. And most spectacularly, Peter had seen Jesus alive, never to die again. And so they get there. As Peter walks in, he's confronted by an overwhelming grief. A number of elderly women greet him, showing the kindness of Dorcas to them. Because Dorcas clearly was a wonderful woman, wasn't she? Verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Then in verse 39, I don't know if you noticed, Luke gives us this beautiful moment of detail. The widows are weeping and in their their tears they pull Peter over and show him the, the tunics the garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. You know, for Peter, these are just, just items of clothing. But to them, these, are, these pieces of cloth were so much more. They were, they were a gateway into the impact Dorcas had had on them. Her kindness, her charity, the way she'd involved these women, had provided clothes for them when they'd had no other support, included them in, perhaps in some kind of business. Dorcas. Dorcas, a a lovely, godly woman, a woman who had shown that the love of Christ to those around her, a woman of poise and character, a woman missed in the community. And what an overwhelming situation for Peter to arrive to. He he takes a moment, verse 40, he puts them out of the room. Perhaps just for a moment of peace, a moment to clear his thoughts, we don't know. And and, and then he, he takes a breath. He slowly bends his knees and kneels on the rough wooden floor next to the lifeless corpse of Dorcas. This once busy woman still before him. And he comes once again to his saviour and his God. What does he do? He prays. You know, although this moment is perhaps similar to Jesus, Peter is no Jesus. He has no power of his own. He's just like you and me. He's just a mere human being. But knowing Christ had something extraordinary in store, he turns to the dead, pale, empty corpse and he says to her, he speaks to her. It's like, like Jesus' um, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. Peter says, Tabitha, arise. And like the widow's son, she does exactly that. She sits up. Again, Jesus is at work here, isn't he? The risen Jesus raises the dead. The blood flows again. The still heart beats again. Peter prayed and Jesus Christ in awesome power acted. And again, just like in Lydda, Joppa is turned upside down. Many are turning to Christ. The Jewish people have found the Messiah, the one who can raise the dead. The church of Christ is growing fast. It's, it's a wonderful tale, isn't it? These two stories of Christ at work. <coughs> now, why? Why this story? Why have, why have I spent time going through it? Well, uh, firstly, God is reminding us to point to the king. To point to the king. Luke is telling us these two miracles to make sure we remember who the king is. You know, just before this, he's been showing us the beginning of Saul's ministry. After this, he's been going to be focusing on Peter himself with the Gentiles. And so in these, these two miracles, Luke is reorientating us back to the main person of his book. He stops us getting distracted. You know, although we focused on Peter, on Aeneas, on Dorcas, the key person throughout this story is obviously King Jesus, isn't it? I hope you've seen that. 
Just think of Peter's clear statement to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Of his prayer while with Dorcas. Remember how these two miracles remind us of what Jesus did while walking around Israel. And most clearly of all, the results of them. People are turning and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord. You know, people weren't wandering around Lydda saying how great Peter was. There weren't new disciples of Peter in Joppa. No, they hear about Jesus. Peter directs their gaze to him. He's the centre of it. He's the one with authority. He's the saviour. He's the one by forgiveness comes. And so Luke is teaching us true ministry points to the king. While we could get so caught up in big names, Saul, Peter particularly, we, we mustn't. Christ must take our attention. He's the one we point to. He's the one we must be pointed to. We point to the king. I reckon we're we're just as tempted by celebrity Christianity now as perhaps they were then. We can make the messenger, the ambassador, the main event rather than the king. I know this in, in my own heart. I remember going up even just to ask a question of a main speaker at a massive youth event I'd been at. And boy, was I nervous, you know. I I could hardly get the word out, hello, uh, without croaking. And that wasn't just because my voice was breaking. You know, now that's not forgetting that Jesus is king, but it just shows a little bit of the tendency we have to idolise people, doesn't it? To elevate them. And and that tendency can start to blinker us to warning signs, like false teaching or or, or abusive behaviour. As a church, we can assume those in high positions aren't the sinners. You know, they can do no wrong. I remember seeing a BBC documentary about the the prosperity gospel in in parts of Africa. And I remember one mega church where the kids in Sunday school were learning songs, not about Jesus, but about the pastor. Recently, one church in the United States had their children colouring in pictures, not of a story of the Bible, but of their minister preaching. Rather than pointing to the king, we, we point to someone else. You know, when you, you've considered picking a church, do you, do, do you think about whether the minister writes books or what they say on social media, or, or do you focus on whether you're being pointed to Jesus? And if you're not here, if you're not a Christian here today, I hope you're seeing Christianity is all about Jesus. If you're wondering whether to become a Christian or not, spend time looking at Him. He's the one that matters. But not only is this a celebrity issue in our, in, our, in our own lives, it's true. When things happen, who do you point to, uh, people to? You know, do you point people to luck? Do you point people to your own achievements? Or do you point people to Jesus? You know, Peter's example is really striking, isn't it? Peter has just performed some serious miracles, and yet the whole town knows it's done by Jesus. But not just Peter, you know, Aeneas is is walking around the town and people aren't turning to Aeneas, but to Jesus. You know, Dorcas had experienced death itself, but she wasn't signing book deals and doing the public speech circuit. Instead, people are trusting in Jesus. Point to the king. I I think this can feel really hard to do. It it can feel a little bit contrived or or we're boasting, feels like we're boasting that Jesus is at work in my life, but not in yours, and 
And yet, when on the, the few times I've managed to, to talk about what he's up to in my life, you know, people listening haven't found it as, as weird hearing it as I felt saying it, if that makes sense. Often our own inhibitions of talking about Jesus are more of a problem on our side than on the side of those listening. I remember again as a teenager, a friend asking why I was relaxed when it came to work and exams. Now deep down, I knew it was because Jesus was giving me stability in him rather than in my results. And yet, yet I came out with some confused answer. Well, you, you know, because kind of just because I am. But, but a simple, you know, I'm a Christian and I know Jesus and, that, and he's really helped me. It's just simple, isn't it? Didn't need to give a massive sermon. Would have been a good start. Perhaps this starts with thanks in our own hearts. Thanks to Jesus for what he's doing. Thanks in our homes. Perhaps with your children, just spending time thanking Jesus for all the good things you have. Will change your heart uh, and their perspective. Point to the king. And if, if you are in some form of ministry, with kids, with, with adults, this should be our greatest goal, shouldn't it? Do you want people to remember how great you are? Or how great Jesus is? Do you long to be popular or for Jesus to be adored? College, I can't remember if I said this before, but on the, the lectern at the chapel at the college I studied at, there was a great little plaque just sitting there and I had a short quote from John's Gospel and it said this, Sir, we would see Jesus. So just as you stood up to preach, that's what you saw. And what a great reminder to us proud college students. Instead of people having people saying how great I am, people should be saying how great Jesus is, that they've seen Jesus. We point to the King. So that's the first point, point to the King. But secondly, in order to point to the King, we need to know something. We need to know this. He even uses us. He even uses us. These two miracles felt that there's a tension in them. Front and centre, they're all about Jesus. It's his kingdom, it's his church, it's his miracles. But alongside that, they do focus on specific individuals, don't they? The people in the stories matter. People, Jesus doesn't just turn lots of people to himself in thin air. There are real people with real problems and real miracles. You know, firstly, it's, it's really significant that it's Peter doing all this. It's not Philip. It's not Barnabas. Peter is the, the, the first among equals in the apostles. He's the one who gave the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's the one who's healing many. He's the one who stands before the Jewish council who judged Aeneas, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. It, it's Peter who went down to Samaria to witness the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And here we are on the edge of one of the most major events of the church, the gospel going to the Gentiles. <coughs> Jesus is once again affirming Peter in his role as his apostle. Jesus is performing these miracles through Peter's signs. They're signs of Peter's authority in Christ's church. They're like the king's seal on his documents. This guy is mine. I'm using him. Listen to him. I'm pointing you to him. The person mattered. People were, uh, Jesus was using Peter. But Luke doesn't just give us information about Peter, does he? He could have briefly said, Peter carried on doing miracles in the area. He didn't need to give us the detail. 
But instead he tells us, you know, it's about one man, Aeneas, and one woman, Dorcas. He tells us what happened to them. He tells us how long Aeneas has been paralysed. He tells us about Dorcas's good works, her involvement with the widows. Although these two miracles are all about Jesus, they show us that Jesus uses ordinary people to build his church. He even uses us. He uses a man who's bedridden for eight years and a woman who's cared for the poor and he uses them to point to himself. They're not irrelevant to the story. They're not just numbers on the page. They're Jesus' brother and sister who he's using to point others to himself with. It's like he's a sculptor. You know, He's got the clay of his church and he's, he's moulding his people to point to himself. He's done that with Peter. And we see him doing it with, with Aeneas and Dorcas. He doesn't just use apostles. He uses different kinds of people. He uses men. He uses women. He uses those who can't do anything and those who've been really busy. He uses those who can speak and those who can't. Dorcas just lay there dead. Of the, the, over the past few weeks, there has been a focus in church, hasn't there, on church leadership. On, on ordained elders, with my ordination, with some of our sermons in 1 Thessalonians, uh, focusing on Paul's specific ministry. Last week in Acts, looking at Saul's conversion. And I wonder if we can be tempted to think that, that all the action only happens up here at the lectern, in the pulpit. Now, now, of course, the ministry of the word and sacrament are Jesus, you know, his means of grace, to the, he gives them through his ministers. But Jesus doesn't limit himself to his ministers. Instead, he uses anyone and everyone for his glory. Men and women, boys and girls. Question for you to think about. Does God need you to build his kingdom? Have a think now. Does God need you? That's a tricky one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, of course he doesn't. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He can do it however he wants. With me, despite me, over me, without me. He can do it through angels, through words in the sky, through someone else. But on the other hand, he uses people like you and me. He uses individual people with individual names and stories and backgrounds. He uses those with good education uh, and those uh, with none. He uses those with a stable family uh, and those uh, without. He uses those from Scotland and even those who are not. He, 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 he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. But he chooses to use you for his glory. It's incredible. Just... Perhaps you feel a bit like Aeneas at the moment. Your life is spent hearing what God is doing through other people. You feel a bit bedridden. You know, that may be literally because of ill health. Or it just feels like it because your work is individual and lonely. Or because you're at home with small children who can't speak to you. But realise Jesus uses even us. Now Luke's not saying there has to be some mega miracle in your life for Jesus to use you. There's a lot of things going on in this story. Remember in this section of Luke, Jesus was also testifying to Peter's authority. It's just what happened here with Aeneas and Dorcas. But Aeneas would have had no idea how God was going to use those eight years of pain. 
And the widows would have had no idea how God was going to use Dorcas's death. And yet he did. And, and you have no idea how God will use your time, perhaps literally in bed, perhaps through your prayers, or through your conversations with those who come to speak to you. You know, our, our dependence on others often, often increases our relationships with them. Or, or how God will use your seemingly small acts of mercy, like Dorcas, to a, to a friend or a neighbour, working with a homeless charity, or, or feeding small children. In the midst of it all, God calls us to service, doesn't he? To, to faithfulness, to live quietly for his glory. And somehow, in his power, he points our lives to the king. He brings glory to Christ and he even uses us. When it comes to church, we we can get distracted. We can think church is about celebrity and it has nothing to do with us. We end up treating it a bit like a reality TV show. We watch it, we enjoy it, but we're detached from it. But Christ's church is different. It's all about him. So let's point to the king and rather than just watching on may we know he even uses us what a privilege amen